0: Welcome to Inside the Hive TV podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Umberto Boncristiani. In this podcast, we talk about the teachings of the most successful society in natural history, the honeybees. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner and an advanced beekeeper or just curious about honeybees. Here, you'll find great conversations to educate and entertain yourself about this wonderful insect. From honeybee biology to how to make money with honeybees, you won't miss anything here. InsideTheHype.tv podcast is brought to you by our fans on Patreon. On Patreon, you can access all episodes before anybody else and exclusive content, like behind-the-scenes videos, live streams, and more. If you want to learn more about honeybees and help me to make more content about honeybees to everybody, please visit patreon.com slash TV and join our community. I'm becoming increasingly interested in honeybee resistant to varroa mite in nature. And in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Melissa Odi, a honeybee researcher at the Norwegian Beekeeping Association and author of several scientific publications on this important subject. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, Melissa, we are finally having this conversation. It's been a while. I'm trying to get in touch with you. I read a lot about your work. I am personally getting more curious about the subject of your work and to learn more about the bees in nature, how we can learn from them and maybe apply some of those lessons to improve the bees around the world somehow. So uh, can we start with your background of how you got into bees, where you're working right now, a little bit, a little overview about yourself for for the people at home that doesn't know you.
1: Yeah, I can I can do that. Um, so I can I can probably start like right at the beginning is I pretty much knew that I wanted to work with uh, animals, specifically conservation, since I was about six years old. And I can pinpoint the exact time if you're if you're in for a, if you're into a story. Uh, sure. So I used to watch uh, Bill Nye, the Science Guy, uh, as a kid, which should date me pretty well. Um and there was uh, an episode on biodiversity um, and there was this one segment that he did where he was talking about um, the, the ecosystem balance and needing all of these species. And as he was talking, he was pulling bricks out of a tower that he had made, each with a species on it. Um, and when he when he got to his point that, you know, the ecosystems needed these, these diverse um, needed the biodiversity to to persist. Um, he pulled one brick out, and the whole thing came down, and that was like a hammer to the back of my head. I was like, "This is this is what I'm gonna do. This is what I have to do." Um, so from that point, I pursued uh sciences um as much as I could. Um, I'd always been fascinated with with honeybees. I was the the kid in the playground who used to pet bumblebees on the backs. <laughs> The other kids thought I was crazy, Um, but that stayed with me Um, and I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto, a zoology specialist with a a major in conservation biology. Did that, uh, got through that, and then um, realized that I probably wasn't going to be very hireable uh, without any experience whatsoever. Um, And going abroad seemed the best way to to broaden my vision and, and experience Uh, So I started a master's uh, at Exeter University at the Falmouth campus, uh, and I did wild insects in agricultural landscapes. Um, But the the country that I actually did the work in was South Africa. So I went for three months in South Africa looking at at wild pollinators. Um, And from there, I started to learn a bit more about honeybees, um, how fascinating they were. Um, And I, I caught wind of, you know, how much trouble they were in because I was I picked up on the the, the media hype, you know, save the bees and, and I learned about Varroa. Um, and then I, I caught a few papers by by Barbara Locke and, and Yves Leconte on some populations that have started to adapt to Varroa. And I was like, ooh, that is so cool. I think I want to do that. Um there was uh there was a researcher working on bees at Exeter. Um but where I got a position actually is I I sent a, a written letter with a CV to Professor Peter Neumann at the Liebefeld Institute at the University of Bern uh, saying, you know, I want to work on Varroa resistance. Um, I think this is this is my thing, so if you have any work for me. And it just so happened at the exact same time that um, my, my supervisor currently, Björn Dahle, reached out to Peter Neumann saying, hey, we've got this population in Norway of Varroa surviving bees quote unquote, because we don't know anything about them. Do you have a researcher who wants to come up and do this? So I got hired on as kind of an intern while we waited for funding. And and lucky enough, the funding went through. Uh, So I started my PhD. and That's what I've been doing since. So I've I've been working on the Norwegian population. Uh, I got a chance to work on the Swedish population, the French population uh, as well, the Avignon population resistant bees. And I can give you more information on these populations if if we need to catch the readers up to speed on on what I'm talking about. So I've been working on varroa resistance since then, since about 2015. Um, And I have learned so much um, about honeybees, about varroa, about how they adapt, how they overcome um, challenges in their environment. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that pretty much covers everything.
0: Yeah, we are going to talk about your these special communities of bees that you're working on, and I'm very curious to know details about them. Um, so, I, I don't know if you know, I, as a consultant for the beekeeping industry, I have a tendency to get the knowledge, and, and some people pay me for advice, which is very hard to do in beekeeping, which is very hard to do in beekeeping with beekeepers with different sizes, different, different business models, different bees, the amount of variables that we have in this, you know, industry is, I think, is the highest that I know. There is no other industry that I I see that kind of variables, and it's so hard for me to to be confident to give advice for people that are paying me. And and so I study a lot. I've been doing this for almost twenty years now, and I still unsure what to tell people when I regarding honeybees. So for you to have an idea how how things have yep. been. Hard on my side. I'm being it's
1: kind of I get it.
0: And, and and so I start to look at those I start to go back to my roots. I'm from Brazil. Um and in Brazil nobody treats. Very, very few people treat for Voroma or for anything in general, actually. First of all, not because they don't want, most of them don't have the resources or the knowledge. So it is in, most of re- the world. Yeah. yeah, most of the world. You're correct. And when I go back home and I start with people and talk with people at home, uh, everybody seems fine. You know, everybody seems to have adapt Is being... There is stories in the past that, and yeah, things got bad with the introduction of Barua. Things, you know, people lost profits and situations changed for a while. To me, it looks now nigh- that now things have normalized for those communities. I'm talking, I'm not, I can't speak for the whole Brazil community beekeeping industry because brazil is a continental country it's bigger than the united states if you take alaska out of the equation so it's hard to say everything is okay there but i have a feeling from the few people that i'm talking to people are fine so i start to get curious about what would happen here in united states for example if you start to go that direction can we go that direction there is any kind of bees populations maybe here or close by that we could learn from or use the genetic from to start a new trend and at the same time there is a trend here in the united states of people that are looking for this kind of information i know a lot of beekeepers that wants to breed for specific things and which is complicated in my perspective so i want to i want to uh, get your brain in this whole conversation so but before we go there i want you to to tell me like, why study honeybees populations surviving varroa mite naturally? So you engage with that. From my perspective, I want to learn what are those traits and maybe bring them to the systems that we have in place. But today, I don't know if I believe this is possible. So I want I want your take on that. Okay. It's a little too much, but we, we can dissect. We have time.
1: So, I mean, if, if you want to have the short answer, you are, are very right and that this is an extremely difficult thing to do is give give people advice because a lot of times people want kind of solid blanket advice for every single scenario or they want a silver bullet and unfortunately with honeybees it doesn't look like that is is ever going to happen you have to analyze each individual scenario uh, and in each environment each condition how many apiaries you know how many hives and what type of bees you have uh, and the situation and you probably have to cater solutions to each different scenario each different setting it's 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 hindered understanding a lot because you have one specific setting and a study is done with one specific set of parameters um and they'll find a result and then you have the study repeated but with a different set of parameters different bees, different country you know different density uh and they will get a different result both of those people swear that their result is the real result and this is what you have to do but neither of them are wrong you know they're both right it's just they are right under specific conditions The way I approach science, the way I approach what I do and how I find answers and and how I interact with other people who also have have answers goes back to a really cool story. I'm not exactly sure which culture in in India, but it's an Indian folktale. Do you mind if I tell it? Cause I think this is going to be fundamental for my perspective and, and, and how I communicate, um, you know, what I'm talking about. So it's called the seven blind men. And uh, I think in, in North America, we'd probably know it as the seven blind mice. Cause it was covered on a show again, way back in my past called reading rainbow and, and it goes like this. So there are seven blind mice and they live around a water hole where life is easy and one day something new shows up to their, their place. Um, and the first mouse goes out to explore, you know, figure out what it is uh, and comes back and uh, says, oh, it's, it's a giant pillar. And, you know, the mice were like, OK, that's uh, this is weird. So the next day, another mouse goes out to investigate it and comes back and says, it's a snake. We need to get out of here. It says, but it was completely different from what the first mouse had found. So, you know, third, third day, the third mouse goes out. It's like, oh, it's just a piece of rope. So this is nothing. The first six mice go out, and they each come back with a different answer, um, and until it's the last mouse just, mouse's turn, and he goes out and he runs up and down and around, and just kind of looks at every single part of what this thing is, uh, you know. And you know, another mouse had said it was a spear. There was a fan involved, a mountain, and he takes all of these things together, puts them in one specific picture, and he's like, "Ah, oh, I know what it is. If you take all of these things." Because they're all of those parts belong to the same thing. Uh, and if you pull back, you find that it's actually an elephant. And it's cool because there's this, this picture of an elephant. So this is, this is basically what science is. Every single researcher, every single person who's looking at this problem has a different piece of the story. And if you take that into account, you know, that, that people have done their work well um, and everyone has one piece, but it doesn't quite fit sometimes with what other people people have, the other pieces of the elephant that people have. But, you know, if you try and, and think of a way in which these pieces could fit together, I think you get closer to the truth. So that's that's how I love approach it. it.
0: I love it. I love it. I, that's exactly it's a puzzle. And we don't have all the pieces. And the pieces sometimes look different, you know, depending on the angle, they might be more similar than you think. And that's
1: the yeah, beauty. But we're all on the same side. Uh, so we're all trying to figure it out together. And if you keep that in the back of your mind, it tends to work out pretty well. So I'm going to draw back and then ask you what the original question was because I think I, I got a little sidetracked. Oh, yeah. So
0: the the, the <laughs> question, the original question was why study them, you know, why get involved and why study honeybee populations surviving Varroa naturally. And then I jump in talking about my problems with science, not with science, but how to communicate and, and make my potential customers or clients and people that I want to advise to understand the dif- difficulties of those puzzles. With everything that's going on in the world today, some anti-science people coming in and, and taking advantage of this this. In- It's not an inconsistency it's part of the game but people don't understand what the game is about those puzzles they they they...
1: use these different pieces to delegitimize
0: the story yeah that's the word i'm looking for thank you so i'm dealing with a lot of of that and and something that i saw is that the people that are most aggressively against these things are the people that need the, the the help the most and so i don't know how to go through that you know of how to find a way to navigate into your, their minds and help them out because they truly need more help than the other than other people but the Sometimes reason it's, I, it's
1: not I was saying sometimes it's it's not an issue of, of good science. Sometimes it's a social issue. Yeah, uh, okay. communication is is just as important uh, as as solid science.
0: Yes, and um, but that's uh, then the question comes: Why study those surviving varroa? Might naturally how those pieces of the puzzle could help the people in the beekeeping community, for example. How why we want to learn from these naturally surviving bees? So that was the original question because I would want okay. to hear that. I want to use those teachings, those lessons, to perhaps help people. How can we help people with those information?
1: So this this touches on a, a bigger issue in uh, that historically, we've we've always been able to affect our environment and change it to our liking. Uh, now we're running into to problems that we can't just instantly change. I mean, they've always been around, but you know, in, in case of of varroa, hello, oh, my train of thought just crashed. Hold on.
0: We're always coping. Okay. Why
1: why why learn from why learn? Yeah, why learn about uh, a varroa? So the answers sometimes are not kind of what we can do how we can affect things but what what can we learn from how nature has persisted and and how it solves problems um, so one of the the degree titles I have is evolutionary biology and evolution is the basically the natural system in place that takes seemingly random genetic changes and allows things that have specific advantages based on those changes to persist better than those that do not have those changes it's it's a kind of a it's an absolutely flawless system in its flaws, in that because these, these changes happen by accident, you have a system that is self-repairing. So you have something that, that, that tips out of balance um, and then something changes and it goes back. And sometimes species go extinct, but it's actually quite rare in the general scheme of things. Mostly things adapt. So when you're asking, you know, why study natural resistance? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, concept. And, and for different countries with different situations, it is more or less important. So I come from a European research background. I'm, I'm, I was raised in Canada, but I've been working on honeybees in, in Europe exclusively. The populations are a lot smaller. The way they do beekeeping is, is different. Norway has one of the lowest uh, hive densities in Europe. So natural resistances is a very viable strategy for a lot of beekeepers here. They're they're fairly small scale when you compare them to North America. Um, So in in Europe, it seems pretty obvious to a lot of beekeepers. And that's shown in that there's a lot of interest in beekeepers, both commercial and hobby, um, to pursue natural resistances uh, and see if you can can build on them and, and, and harness them. And I think for for kind of the, the future of agricultural systems looking at natural systems and how evolution solves these problems and taking that into account rather than keeping keep on trying to change the system when we don't fully understand exactly what's going on I think it probably will turn out for our benefit in, in every case
0: more information is always better i I, I like to say that information is never much. can't take advantage uh, maybe we're we're asking the wrong questions sometimes and then times correct us so the way i the way i see it, it, you you touch base in something very important here yeah the beekeeping in europe is very different from very the beekeeping different. here in north america so perhaps my i am biased to find information that i can immediately use to help beekeepers that are in a breach of you know Collapse, you know, and and lose their their operations, and, and the, there is a lot of consequences on that. You know, you know, people are gonna lose their livelihood. You know, people are desperate. No. People are desperate, and and that.
1: And as there's, as I understand, there's not a lot of assistance that the government offers in those cases.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's I would say it's American way. I would I would say it. the the government is not helping too much. Because it's part of the culture too, to, to have a, perhaps a small government, not and people taking care of things and uh, different ways. Uh, I'm, I'm not criticizing America at all. Actually, uh, if you people at home know, I am a, I'm a big fan of America. Since that's why I moved here. <laughs> uh, my, 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 my nickname in, in Brazil was American boy. So I like, think that says a lot, but not criticizing, but. We need to face some truths here. Uh, you know, the system might be reaching the edge you know, people, so there are people collapsing. Uh, I am with, I have calls. I have people that come to me all the time and asking for help. And I can clearly see this, this, some people have no return. The bees are in a situation that will die. There is nothing we can do about it. And it's very sad think, perhaps the question is how, what, what can we do to make it better? So we don't have those constantly, you know, failures, gigantic failures, because, you know, when you reach that kind of size, you know, I'm talking about beekeepers, I don't know, in Europe, but the, the average here is people that I work with is 3000 hives or more, five, 10, sometimes 60 per beekeeper. So it, it is a different beekeeping and the, the amount of work that I need to do to start be able to give some advice is humongous. I need to study the environment I need to study the bees I need to talk with the crew I need to talk with the beekeeper the master beekeeper I need to understand the different philosophies I need to test the water here I need to see if people understand honeybee health and biology in certain levels when I when I grab all those information then I start to okay let's put this plan and test it because my module here in this channel is always the same We need to test for your need. Everything we're doing here is for your needs because all the variables that we just talked about. So my bias is all of that. How can I use new information to bring to my system and help my people? And I'm having a lot of trouble to help more people and expand my help. But when I look at those publications, for example, publications like yours, I start to see a pathway, which might be better for the system here. But i going to need a lot of, it's going to be a learning curve because a lot of things going to need to change. And the beekeeper going to need to understand that at the end of this game, he's not going to, probably not going to get as much money when the things are running well, but it's going to be more consistent. And he's not going to be in those high risk of completely failure and lose everything. So that's my my convincing part now to the beekeepers here in North America, that changes might not be a bad idea if he wants, you know, to have more security, I would say. Uh, so that's why I'm looking to this, these projects, you know, what can we learn from the bees in nature? How can we use this information? So that's why I, I, I start talking with people like you that is dedicating your life to that. Basically your PhD is in these Mm. populations. What can you tell me about those populations? What can you see in when you go to these populations that never saw treatments against Varroa and, and I know you compare with other populations. What kind of genetic traits or behavior you're able to see in those populations that make them, you know, be more, uh, less sensitive to Varroa infestation?
1: Well, that's, that's a really good segue into the the papers that we want to talk about. Because the, the Norwegian population that I had the privilege of studying is quite unique or was quite unique in the, the body of scientific literature that, that I was familiar with, because it was the first stock that was si- published on in the scientific community that was commercially viable so that the, the beekeeper actually used it for honey production. They were big colonies, really gentle by European standards. You know, they produced competitive levels of honey. Uh, for the regions, and they were they were extraordinarily gentle. So I got to work these these bees myself. They are very nice. They sit still on the comb. Uh, there's no fuss. They're they're not flighty. Um, they're good to be moved because they they do the heather trek in Norway. So they have raspberry, which is uh, the primary flow for, for honey production, and then they in August they ship them up to heather and get that that flow uh, as well. So. They they displayed some really interesting traits. Uh, so I recorded the the bottom boards first uh, when I started these this research, and they were consistently low. And I I did a study which isn't technically published yet, but um, when looking at the the levels of Varroa, I basically counted mites every single week. So there was no day the the colonies were without a bottom board. Um, and I had these control colonies from a population that was regularly treated. Um, and these Norwegian bees basically. St- dated around five to 10 mites a day for pretty much the whole season. Like the, the line was just almost flat and then it was back to five a day, which seems pretty high for non-resistant colonies. But these these guys, they could do it and they they seemed pretty fine with those levels. Whereas the control colonies just kind of had that really signature exponential growth curve in Varroa. And I actually had to stop the experiment early and treat them because I was afraid it was going to happen to them if I let it go like that. So that's the, the evidence I have. And they've done this consistently. They, they have consistently lower varroa reproductive rates when the behavior is is switched on, so when they're actually applying pressure to the varroa, and those traits, the the SMR suppressed mite reproduction. So the the lower reproductive rates in varroa that was consistent in Sweden, in France, uh, and in this Norwegian population. So they all had this this SMR trait, and uh, we had to figure out exactly what was going on. Um, there is a lot of literature on what exactly the bees were doing. And I think it boils down to it's very likely a combination of things that that give you this trait. And the questions I'm asking now with my research is, okay, well, how do we harness this for beekeepers? What's better to run a selection program based on performance or based on trait tracking or based on lineage and and that is the the type of work that I'm doing right now but this paper we are talking about the rapid parallel evolution overcomes global honeybee parasite I believe is the title of it yes. um, and that was
0: people at home we will leave a link in the comments of the podcast or in the description of the video so you can have access to the paper and if you have questions don't hesitate to to leave a comment and or ask me in my email as you guys normally do.
1: Yeah. So this paper basically looked at um, four different populations. There were two in France, one in Sweden, and one in Norway. And this is this this is the second paper that I published on the Norwegian bees. Um, the first one kind of giving a report of the of the SMR traits um, and the the levels of, of Varroa from the bottom boards. But it also looked at at varroa-sensitive hygiene, so the amount of brood removal on on comb, and the the amount of grooming, which was done via a proxy for mite damage. And we can talk about the the methodology and and what works and what doesn't about it, because there were things that I would change now that I did not know when I was doing the the study. But the general profile of the, the bees when I ran this experiment was they had lower varroa, they had SMR, but I didn't find any brood removal which is weird because that was the piece of the elephant that nobody else had. Everyone else found brood removal in resistant hives, and I, I haven't found it yet in, in Norway. Not to say that they don't do it. They just didn't do it when I ran this experiment. Right. And not, not too much mite damage either. But anyway, using using mite damage uh, as a proxy for grooming is problematic, and we can go into that uh, a bit later. So that was the first paper. And the, the interesting thing about the, the Norwegian bees... Because I'll, I'll share a secret with you, it's another story. I was actually set to find Varroa sensitive hygiene, uh, so I designed the experiment specifically to find that. And I was running the experiment, and I was not finding Varroa sensitive hygiene uh, at all. I was dissecting these these frames, um, looking at the brood maps that I had made uh, and, and the photographs, and and it was just was not working out. But the interesting thing is, I had actually read I'd read some papers that were published earlier by the Baton Rouge Lab, Harrison Harbo I believe. And they were talking about varroa-sensitive hygiene, brood removal, and then they talked about this trait called recapping. So, and, and they they explained it basically as a byproduct, an incomplete form of brood removal, and that bees would open the cell caps, not remove the brood uh, for whatever reason, and then another bee would come in and cap it back over with, with wax. The interesting thing is I did not find high levels of brood removal, but I did find this recapping, and I found it at extremely high levels, and you can see the graph in, in the paper. It basically... the the surviving bees were recapping cells at at a much higher rate than the controls I was using. And the highest rates were in cells that we found were to be infested. So this behavior was targeted towards varroa-infested cells, which is absolutely fascinating. So the 2018 paper started when I went to my colleagues in France and Sweden. I was like, hey, can you check for this behavior? Because I found it in, in these Norwegian bees and it's really weird. So we did. We, we ran the SMR studies again and we looked at recapping as well. And we found that, yeah, recapping was much higher in all of the surviving colonies. And again, much higher in cells that were infested with varroa. So this behavior was targeting varroa. Uh, and, and it was very, very present in populations that we knew had these surviving traits. And since then, since that paper, other labs have gone on to look for it in different populations. Um, and they've they've pretty much found it in, in everywhere they've looked for it. They found it in uh, Cuba. That was Stephen Martin. He's, he published on the, the honeybees in Cuba are fascinating because they are European stock bees and the entire country is completely surviving. They just they couldn't afford treatments. So they didn't treat. And it was terrible for a while. And then they got, they got back on top of it and now they have resistant bees. So there's a recapping there. There's recapping in populations in Brazil. Um, so they've, they found it in a lot of different populations. So the question then I asked, okay, so we know it's present and it's highly associated with uh, colonies that can survive a Can we harness this? Can we use this as a trait? And that's the stuff that I'm hopefully going to be publishing on in the, in the not too distant future. What I have is a breeding program um am starting in Norway with a different population of honeybees, a uh, Karnica population, so distinct from the buck vests that I normally work with. Um and the question is, you know, can can we do this this performance-based breeding program where we just measure, you know, Varroa counts on the bottom boards and then track the traits to see if they correlate and then figure out exactly the best the best method. So all that to say and now, now this is in this is in a Norwegian environment. We have very low hive densities. So it's quite easy to do it here. I would say you could probably do it with any any population of bees and you can get surviving bees. But I think that the low density and the cold temperatures give us a very large advantage. I'm not sure how it would work if you have, you know, 500 plus hives in a, in a bee yard where all the bees are, are flying around and interacting and there's horizontal transfer uh, of mites everywhere. I think that's probably one of the largest factors of mite spread is bees sharing mites between colonies rather than the population growth in the hive solely. So yeah, so that is kind of like a, an overview of the paper and a little bit of, of information surrounding. I'll probably let you lead on with the next question. Yeah, about okay. How i How we work on uh, what's next.
0: I have, I have, yeah, I read the paper. I am working on a video about the paper, a specifically video to educate the people at home about the details of the work. But I want to pick up your brain regarding, yes, we saw, you saw in that population, they are very stable with mic count. This is one. Number two, you saw that recapping happens and there is this correlation. The, the people that, the, the bees that have more of the recapping behavior that you saw are the ones that are surviving more in those populations. I want to, let's imagine, let's hypothesize, okay, recapping is involved with that. What do you think is mechanistically would be the process? I know it's, a, it's a, this is very hard. You know, do you think it's when they open? You know, those bees are more capable to tell the bees outside the cell. Look, there is something going on. I mean, something's wrong with me. Can you help me out? So the bees outside go open that. Then maybe they do something, or or only the the process of opening. You know, dehydrate or change the the, the ratios of gases, and that may be problematic for overall reproduction. That way, do you have any hypothesis how? Recapping might be mechanistically making so it some... difficult for parole mite reproduction.
1: So I have some ideas. I'm still not convinced that the recapping is kind of the be-all and end-all trait. Okay. I, it could still very much be a proxy to brood removal. But the interesting point there being uh, recapping is, is once you're trained, you've trained your eye to see it, it's actually quite easy to see on a frame and you yeah. can just pick up a frame and look at it. Testing for brood removal is extremely time consuming. But we're going to go back. Sorry. What was the quiz? <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I'm, I've got 100 a hundred thoughts a minute in my head here. So, um,
0: Don't worry. I, I will edit all those moments. Don't worry. So the question, I'm trying to see if you have some hypothesis about how recapping would influence right. the, the the overall reproduction. That was
1: it. Yeah. Right. So, right, so then I was I was talking about it could still be a proxy for brood removal and brood removal could still be one of the central traits that we need to look for. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced, but then how would recapping actually affect the reproductive success of the mites? So you, you brushed on it pretty much uh, exactly. Uh, and that if, uh, so mites we know are, are highly susceptible to changes in temperature and humidity. We've tried to rear them in the lab. It hasn't exactly gone very well for a lot of cases because they are so sensitive. Like you can't rear them in an in incubator that would use to rear bees. The bees will come out, but the mites do not. So they are very sensitive. And it's possible that if if bees are more attuned to what's going on in, inside a cell, and this could be via larval signaling, or it could also be some detection of, of the mite, when they open these cells, they could create enough of a disturbance. Um, and there's there's two ways it can affect um, varroa. Uh, one is it could hinder egg laying. So the, the foundress usually lays a male egg at the top of the cell because it is before the pupation of the bee and it's to protect the egg from the, the movements of the pupa who might it might destroy the egg. So the male egg is always laid on top. And recapping, we know, happens quite early post-capping. So the the bees will start recapping a cell quite early sometimes before pupation sometimes after and it could be that every time they open the cell it could scare the mite enough that she abandons the the attempt to egg lay and goes back and and hides and now the timing is also very important for varroa as well they have to lay those eggs at specific times because if they lay them late there's a chance that the mites not, might not mature fast enough to actually escape when the, the bee emerges. They might be too young and then they, they die in the cell. So that's one way it could reduce reproductive success. And we actually have noticed the offspring count is lower kind of for, for across the board for all offspring in colonies like the Norwegians, the Swedish and the, the French populations. So reason two is to how it could affect the reproductive success of varroa. And that is mating. So they the varroa mate inside the the cell uh, and if the cell is opened and enough of a disturbance is caused, it could actually hinder mating. So it could delay mating or stop mating altogether. In which case you would have f- mature foundresses that haven't been mated properly and therefore will have a reduced reproductive success in the next generation. And uh, how you would test for that is you would probably do some sort of sperm count in the males from surviving bees um, and then and then take control. I have not done that yet. I don't actually have the equipment at Norbean t- to do it. Years. So if this one researcher wants to do this and publish on it. Please go do it, and it would be really fun to know. Yeah. yeah. So those are my two theories, as of yet unproven. I would I would love to get some more answers on that. But what I'm working on now, specifically because we have such limited resources, um, and we you know we, we don't have a a lot to work with here, so I've relied on the beekeepers here who are interested in working with me to to do these projects. I'm working on more of an applicable approach to harnessing these these abilities um, and harnessing what we know. So, working with beekeepers, applying a breeding program that's run by the beekeepers, and they take my advice based on the data that I that I get off these populations. You know, I run a selection algorithm and I make suggestions as to which hives might be the best in terms of Varroa survivability, honey production, and docility. Uh, those are the three main ones.
0: Interesting, interesting. So you are in the same boat apparently that I am and and the things that are bothering me is like when i see those it, 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 it's been 20 years in the same thing and i see this over and over and, and i and, and i don't see much progress in my my point of view like something that i okay we are moving to a a better solution or better situation right now. I don't have that in my mind. So I want to ask you, because this happens all the time. We see something that we believe is responsible for something. We never hundred percent sure because you know, we talk about repeated in this podcast already many times, the amount of variables are humongous, And but we are okay, we see something new and then we start to, to select for that. And, and that never ends very well in in my in my account. Like I would say, we, we have some of this momentum, but then in the long run, things go back problematic. I always, I almost conflicting with myself. Should we keep going in, with the same way of selection or there is ways to improve our selection systems to the point that we're going to see results that are tangible for the final beekeeper? I don't know if I explained myself very well.
1: Yeah, I might, might need maybe a little bit of context for that. That was a very general
0: let's let's put let's find some examples let's put this example for example we found the recapping we know there is tons of other variables that might be influencing in the final goal which is the reduction of role replication right so then we start to select for that and then we put other things that beekeepers also want involvement in at higher production of honey higher this higher that and then we select that but in nature the final you know natural selection doesn't have rules It is what it is. Whoever survived with whatever, you know, quantity of honey or amount of swarms per year, whatever. There is a a lot of things that we're never able to quantify in nature that are might be responsible for the survivorship of that specific con. And sometimes I I think that we might be so bold to think that we are able to, to do those selections in our favor. I mean, in, that's actually that's the point in our favor. It's not the favor of the coin, because if you leave them alone, they already prove themselves. They, they they survive well. It's how to make the selection that attend our own benefits and keep them with some you know advantage also in nature so they can survive better. I don't. I think, know.
1: I, I, think I get it. So the the nice thing when we're talking about honeybees uh, is yeah. that in a lot of cases it's already happened. So we have beekeepers who've been able to breed resistant stock that are also productive. It happened in Norway, There's there's been no published on it, but I know a couple of other beekeepers have figured it out and, and, and they're doing it and they're selling their stock. And stuff, but it you know it, it brushes on you know how much we're willing to examine the natural systems, learn about natural systems, and pull from that and use it. You know, human beings are effectors; so they always change their environment, and I, I don't expect that to stop. What we can do is get better at, at how we're changing the environment, learn more about the environment, so we can integrate elements of it uh, and create kind of sustainability for our practices. Uh, I think sustainability is going to be a big buzzword in the. Uh, I mean, it is already. Yeah, um, but we really need to reevaluate our systems to and, and how to pers- how to have these these ecosystems persist alongside us, rather than, than steamroll them for profit, because that's not sustained. It will not. We cannot keep doing it. It won't happen. So I mean, me the
0: point. We do it, and you never reach the point, and there is those big failures along the way that I can not see right away. And I think
1: I we're we're like, all in this so, together. Yeah. So like you know, it's it's not just the beekeeper. Per se, it is all the landowners around them.
0: Yeah,
1: um, and I mean, and you know how the landscape I mean, is
0: changed. Important. When I was explaining my point, I missed something important to you, which is yes, we are selected. We have something that worked for us in that, but then people want to sell the stock to other environment, and I and I see that yeah. failure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. That's, so, the that, that's the problem. I forgot about this missing piece, which is very important one because it's
1: a very well, important one. So, I'm
0: advising people to select locally. You
1: know, exactly.
0: Gain something from far away, different, selected, you know, in a different environment, completely different. Yeah.
1: It's and that's, that's one of the main arguments when people, because a lot of people still don't believe you know the 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 fact that a lot of stock is actually surviving because they're like well we imported them here and then they died so they're not surviving it's like yeah. yes they are the conditions are different so i i promote basically the same as you is like if you have the the capacity to breed locally do it because the bees that are adapted to your specific environment are already accounting for challenges that you can't account for you can't assess bees are unique in livestock animals that you cannot control every aspect of their day-to-day lives you know you, you don't know what you feed them they go out and find their own food and they'll bring the honey back to you yeah so
0: very important yeah. very topic part uh, and something that I want to try to do with this the breeders if you can incorporate some some sort of metrics that when you sell a stock you need to sell with the information about the environment that that stock was selected. Because then people, exactly. you know, different markets, they can look at not only, okay, this is a queen that's, you know, is a for mites, but if you bring more information with that queen, so that was selecting in this kind of woods with this kind of, you know, uh, humidity uh, all over the year, you know, if you have this yeah. more, you know, more data, maybe people are going to start to buy those stocks for other reasons it's gonna to start to work in different places because okay for my environment I need to get that breeder from that place that it's very likely to my environment and then I'm gonna have higher chances for that selection whatever selection happened over there to work on my operation so that's in something-
1: addition yeah in the addition. other other piece of advice I would give to uh, to beekeepers is, is you know once you once you have this surviving stock, whether you buy it or breed it, you have to keep selecting. This is not, uh, I mean, you, you can, you can talk about fixed traits and and uh, and dynamic traits, but the thing is all traits are dynamic. All traits are changing. And the bees are basically selection for the bees is going to happen for the bees unless you act upon it, you apply pressure to the system and bring the traits back to what you want. So, you know, when you when you have this stock, you need to keep selecting for the best queens. Um, and I, I strongly encourage, over, if you have over. the capacity to breed your own queens. So, Melissa, did you see any other traits on those hives,
0: on those colonies, in those populations? We talk, we talk about, you know, uh, recapping. There is more traits that you saw, or that could be involved also in the interference with uh, Varroa replication.
1: Yeah, so as I said, there's, there's, I suspect, quite a number of traits. Uh, there was a paper put out recently that I was, uh, I was on looking at the, the brood element of this this varroa control. And they actually did find that the brood, is it's possible that the brood could affect uh, varroa reproduction as well. So something in, in the, the volatile oils, um, the, the hydrocarbons, something that, that messes with the timing of egg-laying of varroa, it's possible. There's been a couple of papers published on it. It's a possibility. Um, I do know the Norwegian stock is quite hygienic. It's quite attentive to foreign elements in the hive, all foreign elements. Um, I rarely see chalk brood. Uh, the beekeeper himself actually did a little bit of selection with uh, black ants because ants are, are one of the, the main predators of, of beehives up here in the spring. So how quickly they jumped on ants and drove them off uh, as well. So he did that selection as well. So they' they're they're not very tolerant of other bees or, or foreign elements in the hive. so that probably could pay, play a role. Like I said, I did test for for grooming, but the, the problem with using damaged mites as a proxy is it's it's not very reliable. Um, so there still could probably be more tests done to see exactly how much grooming and how successful it is. Because uh, the other thing is mites, they are exceptionally good at not getting caught. Um, you know, they—they're the hydrocarbons on their backs kind of replicate the, the scent of the colony in a few hours. Um, and then they're completely invisible. Um, they hide under, the, under the, um, the abdominal segments there. They just hide right under there. And they, the bees cannot get them out once they're there. Grooming is probably still a thing but it's probably not the main thing uh like i said it's, it's probably a, a mix which it's which makes the game. selection so hard which is why i'm focusing on performance to see see what we get so just looking at the bees that, that can survive and, and have low might numbers consistently and giving them a score based on that
0: yeah it's always a mix of things that people need to understand that it's not one or two there is no silver bullet i mean i mean yeah. four forward I want to ask you something. What does this mean for beekeepers facing varroa mite problems around the world? You know, uh, where where do you see the beekeeping going regarding varroa control, and what would be the best approaches, I guess, to to tackle this problem? Because we are dealing with this talk about the United States only almost forty years now, and things are not getting yeah. bad. Well,
1: if- yeah. Well, I've got a pretty optimistic view uh, coming from from Europe. Um, I've been I've been told that from a North American audience. So um, I, I can I can take a look at the microcosm that I'm that I'm coming from here. So this beekeeper when when I started publishing on it, he started to become you know more well known, but this started even before I got there as that other beekeepers started buying his resistant stock, local beekeepers, and now they've created kind of almost a buffer region where there just aren't so many mites in the system because most of the beekeepers around him that have bees on the land close to this beekeeper don't really have an issue with, with mites. So I'm, I'm hoping that's how it's going to start. It's going to start with these these epicenters of people who want to breed resistant bees who manage to, to find a successful way to do it in their own areas. And, and it just kind of radiates out. There's a few people in England that are that are doing it, and there's probably a lot more beekeepers doing it than I know of um, at all. I know there's a couple in the states who are trying with and, and having some relatively decent success. There's also some some national breeding programs that are doing pretty well. I, I haven't read up so much on the Pauline lines or Pauline 2.2, yes. but they they seem to be fairly successful. So eventually, you know, sense. we're gonna we're gonna solve it as human beings. This is what we do: we solve problems. You know, we have to learn from the systems and we have to improve our techniques. Um, and I think, you know, we we need to hang on to sustainability because that's going to be a very important factor. And I think eventually, one day, Varroa isn't going to be a very large problem. One day,
0: yeah. I I believe I believe that's true. But uh, the, the question I think to me is how to get there with the minimal suffering from everybody involved.
1: <laughs> that's the question. <laughs> the question. That's the question. Uh, that's the question. So, uh, I mean, my, from my experience, my part of the elephant, start small. You know, if, if you've got a, a massive operation, don't try and change all your stock at one time. Start, oh, with, yeah. start with a bee yard. Start with a few colonies in your backyard. Run tests, do experiments, read everything, and then make up your own mind about stuff. Uh, don't just, you know, believe the first thing that people tell you. Don't believe what I say. Go and read and find out for yourself.
0: Melissa, there is another topic that uh, apparently I'm the minority here in the United States, and even my peers don't talk too much about that. But I doesn't matter how much fact I can bring to the table. Oh, those those populations that you're studying, can you give me a little overview about how much pesticides are are they exposed to?
1: Cool question. In terms of of what the beekeepers apply, Any next to nothing. Any. Uh, so Norway, I know, has very, very strict regulations on pesticide application in, in the fields. We're not using neonics uh, out there. There's there's probably some glyphosate, uh, stuff like that. But the, the pesticides, I would say, in Norway, very minimal. Um, and they are not allowed to use acaricides on their bees. Uh, it's organic acids only for the whole country. Okay. Um, in terms of other European countries, I do know pesticides are applied. I do not know to what extent... Uh, on which crops, how they are applied, when they are applied, and what their effects on on honeybees are specifically. Um, but I do know that Europe Europe does have very strict regulations. So yeah. the the neonics are permitted to be used in emergency cases, and I think there's a couple that got reapproved. But yeah, I mean, in in terms of of how that is affecting the system, and, and how so that's affecting varroa and, and stuff, there's, there's a lot of literature on on what they're capable of. But I would say. But honeybees are probably going to be one of the last insect species that you're going to see an impact on in terms of pesticides They're they're more resilient than than other like solitary bees for example they're much more resilient uh against pesticides than those so if, if we see honeybees having a problem based on pesticides then we're pretty deep into it and we need to stop
0: yeah i i so pesticides there not not too much of an issue it's, it's much, very likely much less
1: I would say there's yeah. probably more applied than is, we are aware of because, I mean, people get a hold of these things. They use them. Um, a lot of people don't really follow instructions. Yeah. So yeah, this is all speculation. I don't have the numbers to present to you.
0: Well, I have examples, tons of examples, but and th- that's the kind of thing that the reality in the field it is it, not the reality of whatever people, of the regulatory people are looking at. Yes. Know, but it's it's hard. This is a lonely battle of myself, I
1: guess. Yeah, I mean, you. I can understand where people are coming from. A lot of people applying these things, they're farmers too. They have quotas to make, they have families to feed, and if something happens that, that, that scares them, they might lose their crop. Uh, like you said, you know, that could spell disaster. So I understand the logic uh, in a lot of the decisions made, but we should probably be thinking about making decisions together rather than on an, an individual basis.
0: Oh Well, just, you know, I... I always follow what I don't think we can solve any problem. If we don't face the problem, like if we talk about problem, if we ignore a problem or pretend the problem doesn't exist, we're never going to solve a problem. So that's always my point. We're going after the truth. So if pesticides are involved, we need to know, you cannot just
1: They are definitely involved. They
0: are definitely involved. involved. I can not prove it, demonstrate it, but uh, not only that, but there is procedures there are people different hands there is a lot of variables. Yeah. We cannot and as, as
1: beekeepers we we do have a vested interest in the health of the ecosystems around us because those are the ecosystems that our bees use yeah so we should be teaming up with conservation organizations in, in terms of protecting the environments around us because the, those those provide the floral resources that our bees need it's not just cropland in fact it it's much healthier for the bees if it isn't just cropland that they're harvesting on
0: agree yeah so I, I like it. I like your view. We need to work together, all those organizations, and don't close our eyes for the, the problem. Otherwise, we can't solve any problem. Melissa, I want to ask you a final question. Where people can find your work? or well, how can they find... Okay,
1: right. So um, I'm, I've got profiles on a couple of uh, websites. I am on LinkedIn, but I don't often update that with my scientific research. Where you can find my papers uh, is a site called ResearchGate. Um, And you can probably post a link to that. Uh, I can give you my profile link as well, if you'd like. And then also uh, Google Scholar. So if you just type in Google Scholar into the Google search bar and then hit the first hit, and then you type in my name, it'll bring up a profile for me. You click on that and it should give you pretty much everything that I've been an author on so far. So you can read everything I've published. And if you encounter a paper that is paywalled, I don't think I have very many but I think there is a couple. And then paywall happens when the authors themselves can't afford the astronomical publication fees that these journals like yeah. to charge. So they lock it behind, uh, so they make the, the public pay. If you come across uh, an article that you would like to read that is paywalled, do send me an email because I can send it to you for free.
0: Yeah, and you can even, I think in ResearchGate, you can make it available to everybody there too.
1: As long as it's not paywalled, there's uh, there's some legal, I think they oh, got into yeah, legal okay. trouble with that as well. But you can request the article from the, the, author, the author. And the author is legally allowed to share the, the article with anyone who emails them personally. That is okay, allowed. Good.
0: I will leave a link of all those things we're talking about here in the podcast notes on the description of the video, so you guys can contact Dr. Melissa by email or whatever uh, uh, social media platform you want to start communication with her to know more about her work. Melissa, I want to thank you very much for your time. This was a great conversation. Uh, I learned thank a lot. Thank you
1: very much for inviting me. This is a, it's fun to talk to a North American audience about, it's uh, fun
0: about to see what's happening all over the world regarding varroa i'm interested much, so much. more and more about this let let the beast take care of varroa themselves so i will keep updating the people with i'm gonna are probably gonna publish one or two videos about your work then these podcasts. so yeah we, we're gonna be talking about your work a lot
1: happy to help yeah you can always reach out to me this is, uh, I can talk bees all day.
0: All right. Do you have any other message to people at home?
1: Hang in there. It will get better.
0: Okay. That, we got to keep uh, trying. Style, very positive. Okay, good. <laughs> Melissa, thank you very much for your time. And you guys, thank you guys for listening to the podcast and to watch the video. It is always a pleasure to have you here. Let me know if you have any questions and comments. Leave in the comment section below or send me an email at contact at in- inside the and I will try my best to answer those comments and questions. And until there, see you guys in the next one. Inside the, the show about beasts. See you guys next week. Bye-bye. InsideTheHive.tv podcast is brought to you by our fans on Patreon. On Patreon, you can access all episodes before anybody else and exclusive content, like behind-the-scenes videos, live streams, and more. If you want to learn more about honeybees and help me to make more content about honeybees to everybody, please visit patreon.com slash InsideTheHiveTV and join our community.